Okay, beautiful. Let's have a prayer. Lord God, you fill our lives with so many things, many people, many events, many objects, many situations, many experiences, many challenges, many sorrows, many joys, many blessings. You fill our lives as a way of expressing yourself to us, as a way of giving us opportunity to enjoy life and to enjoy you. And even those things that are the least enjoyable, we know, Lord, are there for, for our growth, for our development, for our opportunity to show your love. We thank you that you have redeemed already all of those things that are wrong through the life and death of your son and that you are continuing to redeem through his spirit that lives in us and that works through us to bring your healing and redemption to all. We thank you then that we can be gathered this morning for a few brief moments to receive further instructions and to gain further insight and to receive further energy and inspiration for then going back out into that world that you have made and are redeeming through Jesus. Bless and be with us. Give us everything we need today to be filled up again for your work and your witness in the world. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, once again we have a lesson in Luke that has lots of text, lots of text, and lots of stuff going on with it. So we're going to dive right in with that. Uh, it's not likely that we'll have a lot of time left over for questions, but for some reason in this context putting a microphone in front of you terrifies you. You don't want to ask questions anyway except afterwards when you sidle up to me and say, Jack, can I ask you a question, right? That's just the way it works. Let me tell you this, I will pay much closer attention to you if you bring me a cookie at the same time, okay? So I don't know, I don't know. All right, so we're in Luke chapter 18, uh, starting with verses 31 through 34. Then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Okay. There's a lot going on here, and one of the first things we have to deal with is that we always have to deal with our skepticism about when Jesus, in a sense, foretells the future. And that's what he's doing here, uh, in part. He knows that when he goes into Jerusalem, he's going to run into serious, serious trouble. And some skeptics will look at this and say, there's no way Jesus could have known the particularity of that. And yet, in our faith, we have to say, Jesus could have known, Jesus did know. And even if he did not know the specifics of it, he knew the generalities of it. He knew what happened to people who ran afoul of the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. And so in a sense, he's simply saying, this is what's going to happen. He did not have to know the specificity of that. There's a lot more to this story, though, than just that sense that Jesus knew what was going to happen. And we need to be sure not to let that issue and that question that might even be in our own minds, we have to be sure not to let that detract from the other more important things that are being said here. Uh, 
So we know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as we said last week, we've said for several weeks now, this journey to Jerusalem figures prominently in Luke's way of looking at Jesus' life because Jesus intentionally, purposefully set out to go into Jerusalem in order to have this direct confrontation with evil. We must never miss the pathos of that. Just like when somebody intentionally goes into a dangerous and difficult situation and we wonder where their courage comes from, we see that same thing going on in Jesus. Jesus is with his disciples, of course, and one of the things that he continually says to the disciples is that what is happening in my life has already been talked about in the prophets so that everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. We are meant to understand that the long history of God with his people, his chosen people, is now coming to fulfillment it is coming to its appointed purpose and end, if you will, not the end of the story, but the purpose of the story, the meaning of the story, the meaning of everything that God is doing. And it's already been discussed in all the prophets. This is important because especially for the first Christians who lived with Jesus, heard Jesus, experienced everything in Jesus' life, they, had, they didn't have the New Testament to explain to them what was going on. They had the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They had their own scriptures. And it's in going back and reading those again and getting deeper wisdom and insight about what God was doing in the world that they understood who Jesus was. And so that's why we also consider those scriptures before Jesus' lifetime to be so vital because Jesus' life is a fulfillment of those scriptures. In that way, Luke was also signaling to us what Jesus was signaling to the disciples, that, that in a sense, God was doing a brand new thing in his life, but God was also doing something that was a fulfillment of an old thing. Jesus was not a radical break from Judaism. He was rather the fulfillment of Judaism. And that's one of the places where you and I can have very fruitful conversation with our Jewish cousins in, in faithfulness to this God uh, that we call Yahweh, the God uh, of, of all things, the one true God, is in that common and shared history. Notice that Jesus says he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, we know that Jesus is also handed over to the Jews. What's going on with that? Well, there's an argument that's going on even in the first century church, or a discussion, if you will, about just who ultimately was responsible for killing God's son. And that discussion has continued to be extremely important in our history and is important today and was certainly important in Western Europe in the 1920s and the 1930s as a particular Western European leader used the idea that the Jews had killed God as a way of developing his own political power base and ultimately murdering millions of Jews as a result. Here we see clear evidence that it's not only the Jews who are blamed, if you will, for the death of God's son. It's also the Gentiles. And when we say the Gentiles, when that word is used, we are talking about the Jews and everybody else. That's what the word Gentile actually means, is there's the Jews and then there's everybody else, all the other nations. 
And so scripture is very clear that every single human being on the face of the planet by extension, everybody is responsible for rejecting God's Messiah, rejecting God. And we cannot in any way, shape, or form with any biblical theological defensibility, we cannot blame one group of people. That's important for us to continue to say in today's world because even though you and I might sit here and say, well, of, of course we cannot, we cannot look down on the Jews. Not everybody says that. And then by extension, we have to look at that human tendency that we have always to pick out some group of people to pick on. You notice that we do that? Every single one of us does it. We do it sometimes unwittingly, unknowingly, because that's the way, one of the ways, one of the millions of ways that human society has gone wrong. We pick out people to pick on. I just create, would somebody write that down? Because I'm going to use that for a sermon title, picking out people to pick on. That has that good, a good feel, doesn't it? Right? We pick out people to pick on. Uh, if you're from if you're a fan of Duke, you pick on people who are fans of North Carolina. If you're a fan of North Carolina, you pick on people who are fans of Duke. Am I wrong about this? No, I am not. And it, and it gets worse from there. And so in the scriptures, we have, in a sense, this, this primary, this fundamental, this visceral division between Jews and Christians that we think is biblical, that is anything but biblical, and everything goes from there. And so every single one of us needs to learn that lesson, that we pick out people to pick on, and that is not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of God. And I can tell you many situations in, in American politics, American culture, and then every other country in the world, even internationally, where this fundamental human problem continues to give us trouble and it's life and death trouble for some. So all of that, all of that and more, but we will keep on going, is contained in just those few verses that Luke gives to us there. Let's keep on reading with verses 35 to 43 in chapter 18. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, praised God. Okay, Jesus is coming close to Jericho. Have any of you been to Jericho or close to Jericho? Yeah, yeah. Jericho is one of those places that's now walled off and sealed off in the division between the Jews and the, and the Palestinians. It's very difficult to go into Jericho today. But Jesus was coming close to Jericho. He's east of Jerusalem. I'm going to start going up the long hill up to the city of Jerusalem. Well, so Jesus is coming close to Jericho. There's a blind man there. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But he calls out and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
That's absolutely critical in this story. This blind man believes or hopes as well as believes that Jesus is from the line of David and maybe that Jesus is going to be like David. We've talked a lot and you cannot escape this, this question in scripture. We've talked a lot about the expectation of the Messiah coming back. A new leader and people had a lot of conversation, a lot of ideas about who this leader would be, what he would be like, what he would do. But it apparently is the case that most people thought that he would be like David. David was the greatest king. If you want to pick out the greatest leaders of Israel, you would Abraham, of course, had his role. Moses had his role. But it was David who had made the nation into a great nation. And now this man calls out to son of David. That indicates his hope in Jesus. That indicates the hope of so many people in that period of time, that maybe Jesus would be the great politician. You know, there might even be some connections we could make today between this expectation and hope in Jesus as the son of David and, and uh, Zelensky over in Ukraine right? Who's uniting the people together and standing up against the aggressor. There's that kind of hope that this man has in Jesus. Now, he wants to get his sight back. He's heard that Jesus has healed other people. And so he shouts out, have mercy on me. The crowd tries to hush him, say, be quiet. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. But the man calls out again. Jesus pays attention and says, yes, you can receive your sight. And his sight is restored. Yet another example of how Jesus was about the business of healing people. Now, clearly he didn't heal everybody. Everybody on that crowd probably had something wrong with them, maybe except for the youngest of them, right? Everybody in that crowd had arthritis or deteriorating hearing or the heartbreak of psoriasis. They had something going on that Jesus could have healed. Jesus didn't heal everybody. He healed some people as a demonstration of his power, but he was about more than the business of just our physical healing. And so when Jesus does not heal you physically, don't feel bad. He didn't heal most people physically. He even chose not to heal himself, if you will. It was God who did that ultimately in the resurrection. Why would the people say to this blind man, don't ask Jesus to help you, don't cry out, why would they do that? Wouldn't they have pity on this man? Well, there's lots of things going on there, possibly. Maybe they believed, as many did in Jesus' day, that some kind of disease or illness was a sign that you were a bad person, you were a sinner, and God was punishing you. Just like with leprosy. We talked about leprosy last week. You remember that? If you were a leper, it was considered that God didn't love you, that God was punishing you. So some might have looked at this man and said, you are not worthy of asking for Jesus to heal you because clearly you're a bad guy. You've done something wrong. That might have been part of the background of that. We don't know for sure, but that very likely is what was going on. Notice that Jesus helps this man to see. We have just heard that as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem with the disciples, and he's told them what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that they were blind to that truth. And now Jesus helps a man see. This is a fundamental issue in discipleship. Do we see who Jesus is? Do we understand? Do we comprehend 
the truth? Do we, in an older way of saying it, do we apprehend the truth? Do we make it our own? Do we receive it into our lives? Jesus was about the business of helping people actually see who they were and what the reality of the world is and how we are blinded to the truth and instead we think other things are true and we follow after those false things. Jesus helps us see. That's why you and I keep coming here every Wednesday morning to open our eyes again and hope to see a little bit more and a little bit better. There's that famous story uh, when people come to Jesus and, and the disciples are surrounding Jesus and they say, what are you doing here? And they say, sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. I've preached from pulpits before where that, that quotation is inscribed on the pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's what Everything is about in the life of the church, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our studying, in our praying, and all the things that we do is so that we can see Jesus, understand Jesus, not be blind to the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. Let's keep going. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19. I'll spoiler alert here, okay? This is one of my very, very favorite passages of Scripture. I'll let you decide why after we read it. You're already thinking about that, aren't you? Do you have a guess? Why is this my favorite passage? I say that a lot? Yeah. Well, that's true, I guess. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. Okay, great story. You all know about Zacchaeus, right? Does anybody not remember hearing this story at least once? It's okay if you don't. Maybe you're brand new in scripture study. That's okay. We remember the story because there are lots of very, very graphic and rememberable things about it. Memorable, I guess, is the word, not rememberable, but I like to say rememberable. So this is a story that's very easy to do a coloring sheet and color in Zacchaeus up there in the tree. It's graphic because there's a guy that's climbed a tree, right? It's easy to do on your flannel graph. And most of us, when we encounter this story at four years old or six years old or eight years old, we're extremely impressed that a man would climb a tree to see Jesus. That's what we focus on, right? Am I wrong about this? If I say Zacchaeus, what would you say about Zacchaeus? He's the guy that climbed the tree to see Jesus, okay? 
Now, why he climbed the tree is because here's one place where the Bible gets it wrong. It says he was short. I don't think he was short. I think he was a normal-sized person. And I, and I think that with the crowd, he just couldn't see over everybody, okay? That was a joke. None of you laughed at that. Oh, well. Right? Zacchaeus is a smaller guy, so he has to climb up in the tree, right? There's a lot made of the fact that Zacchaeus actually embarrassed himself. He didn't care what people would think. He climbed the tree. Do we, do we embarrass ourselves sometimes? Will we go to any length so that we can see who Jesus is? Are we worried what people will think if we are focused on Jesus? That's one of the lessons we can draw from this. It's not the primary lesson, but it is one of the lessons, not a bad lesson at all. Let's look at who Zacchaeus was. What do we know about tax collectors in Jesus' day? Okay. They're, look, they're rich. They are collaborators with the enemy. They are looked down upon because what the Romans would do, the Romans were very smart about this, by the way, when they'd go into a territory. They didn't know who was who. They didn't know where anything was. They, they would entice traitors, essentially, uh, to become their tax collectors. Zacchaeus is one of the Jews, knew who had the money, knew where it was, knew what was going on. The Romans would say, look, you go get taxes, and some of it you're going to give to us. You can keep a little bit for yourself. You can keep whatever is over and above we say that we have to have from you. And so that's how tax collectors got rich. They took more than they actually had to take. And everybody knew they did that, but because they worked for the Romans, you couldn't do anything about it. And so Zacchaeus was a traitor. He was a collaborator with the enemy. And he was, as it said here, a sinner. Just like the blind man was considered to be a sinner whom Jesus heals, Zacchaeus is a sinner in a very public sort of way. And yet he climbs the tree to go see Jesus. And then Jesus does something that no good Jew would do. He says, I'm going to hang out with the sinner. I'm going to hang out with a sinner. In fact, I know who you are. You're Zacchaeus. Come down. Let's go to your place and have a bite with each other. There's a scandal in that that's hard for us to understand, right? It would be, you know, it would be like our world's top religious leaders today uh, going into the brothels and the crack houses and the prisons and wherever sinners hang out, like it in, you know, Congress and Sacramento and all of those different places where, where sinners hang out, right? Maybe they would even come here to the church and find some sinners here. So Jesus goes to this sinner. Notice what Zacchaeus does even before, before he talks with Jesus. He says, Jesus, I'm going to give half of what I've got to the poor. And if I, if I have defrauded anyone, Zacchaeus is kind of hedging his bets there a little bit. Well, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But if I have, I'm going to give back fourfold, right? The blind man on the road to, Jer to Jericho already knows who Jesus is and, and wants something from him, expects something from him, a healing. Zacchaeus obviously knows who Jesus is, and he's already made up his mind. The way this story is told, he's made up his mind to change his life. There's a story about repentance and forgiveness and then restoration here. Repentance is not just Zacchaeus saying, Jesus, I, I believe in you, I love you. Right? Forgiveness is not just Jesus saying, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come eat with you. There's something that comes out of the whole transaction, and that is a changed person. 
who goes back and tries to, to make right what he had made wrong. Restitution, we call it. And so Jesus goes and has lunch with Zacchaeus. And what do we hear? Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, by being a Jew, was part of the family, even though part of the family rejected him because they didn't like what he was doing for good reasons. It wasn't likable what Zacchaeus was doing. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to bring everybody back into the family, into the fold, not just sons of Abraham, but ultimately all children of God. It's a graphic story. It's a beautiful story. It's well worth remembering. Go out and find a coloring book and color a picture of Zacchaeus somewhere. Now, all along in this route to Jerusalem, Jesus is saying things and doing things that demonstrate what the kingdom of God is about. Let me take us back out to the, to the broader picture for just a second. All of these individual stories taken as a whole give us a picture of what it is like when God is at work in the world. That's who Jesus is, God at work in the world. Restoring relationships, restoring and healing people, calling everybody to be in relationship with each other, calling everybody to act with justice and mercy and kindness and faithfulness. We can go on and on and on. But if you want to know where the kingdom of God is or how it is coming, if you call out to the son of David, the son of man, Jesus the Savior, I got saved. This is what salvation is in this world. It is an example, a prefiguring, a demonstration, a foretaste of what the kingdom of God will be in all of its glory when all of history is consummated. There won't be any blind people. There won't be any evil people. There won't be any injustice or lack of mercy. There will only be all the beauty and joy that Jesus brought into the world. Does that make sense to you? Don't ever, ever, ever lose that vision because it's part of what keeps us going every day. Okay, starting with verse 11 through verse 28, chapter 19. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, everybody's worried about the kingdom. So, he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of ten cities. Then the second came saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you're a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. 
You know, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Okay, this is one of those stories, one of those places that sometimes confuse us and, and make it so that people who sit down and start to read through the Bible will say, I don't get this, and then they quit. Or they say, I don't get this, this must not be true, must not be for me, must not be useful and reasonable, okay? We should never let something like this scare us away, though. We do need help, I think, to get through it. So, Jesus talks about a nobleman who goes to a distant country to get power for himself. When Jesus mentions that, people are possibly thinking about a situation that they already knew something about. And that takes us to the broader history and story of what was happening in Jesus' time. You remember King Herod? We've talked about King Herod an awful lot. Herod had several sons. Herod's arrangement to be the king of Israel was made through the blessing of the emperor of Rome. Herod was a puppet ruler. We've been hearing a lot about puppet rulers in the, the very recent past, right? How, how Russia wants to come in and establish puppet governments who are loyal to Russia. And they're not really in charge. It's really Russia's in charge. Well, Herod was a puppet king. He wasn't really in charge. It was the emperor of Rome who was in charge. Well, as Herod dies and goes away, then Herod's son has to go to the emperor and say, put me in charge now. The son was named Archelaus. And that's actually what happened. Her, uh, the, the emperor divided up the, the broader area of Judea and, and div, uh, divided out among, I think it was three of Herod's sons after King Herod, Herod the Great died, okay? So when Jesus says a, a nobleman was going to a distant country to get royal power for himself, it's very likely that the Jews were thinking about that situation, right? Now, he goes away and he has to put other people in charge of his stuff, other people in charge of his money. Ten pounds he leaves, okay? This is illustrative. It's not, it's not direct. It's not exact. I'm going to put you in charge. I'm going to put my slaves in charge. We talked about the business of slavery in that time. Let's not let that uh, distract us right now. But the, the, the boss goes away and leaves the underlings in, in power. And then he comes back and says, what have you done with what I left for you? This story, by the way, is told in other Gospels with a different slant and a different twist. It's not told exactly the same way. But it's told usually as a way of our understanding who we are, that we are put in charge of God's creation, and we're meant to do something good with it, and God will come back one day and say, what did you do with my creation? What do you do, you do with yourself. This is kind of a this is a stewardship story in some sense. Don't think just about money even though money is definitely involved. Think about everything. What did you do with your life? What did you do with your intellectual ability? 
What did you do with your creative powers? What did you do with the family and the history and the situation into which I placed you in your life? Did you do something with it? Did you misuse it? Did you abuse it? Were you terrified and you sat there and didn't do anything with it? There are all of those lessons going on here. Jesus is that nobleman, that ruler, if you will, who comes back and says, what have you done with your life, with every aspect of who you are, with the part of the world that you control, right? You control part of the world. Some of you control bigger parts, some of you control smaller parts, but you control part of the world. That part of the world that you control the most is sitting there right there with you. It is you. You're the only one in control of your life. Right? What are you doing with that? And all the things that are part of that. So that's part of the story that's going on here. There's more to it, though, than that. This one servant, this one underling who said, I was afraid of you, so I didn't do anything, has misunderstood something about who his boss is. Right? The boss might have been a, a pretty tough guy. Right? Who, who reaped what he did not sow and took what was not his. Maybe that's who he was. But, but at any rate, the others were not afraid. They were not, the, the, the other nine were not afraid to take what the ruler had left with them and try to do something good with it. The one was afraid. He didn't understand who the boss was. Do we understand who our boss is? Do you understand who God is? Martin Luther once wrote that we should sin boldly. And by that he meant that we should attempt great things, that we shouldn't always be afraid of just being wrong and sit there uh, somewhere and, and not try to do something. He was partly taking on the, the business of, of, of monasticism. Some people said, you know, the world is so corrupt and I'm so prone to sin, I'm just going to go sit in my cave here for my entire life so that I don't do anything wrong. Well, what does that attitude get you? What does that action get for you? It means maybe that you don't do as much wrong as you might do, but it also means that you don't do any right either. You remember that prayer of confession that we have? Lord, forgive us for the things that we have done that we ought not to have done, and how does the rest of that phrase go? For the things that we have not done that we ought to have done. If we understand that God plunks us down here on this earth for however many years he gives us, and God loves us, and God will forgive us, and God wants us to do something with our lives that are part of what he has done in the creation of goodness, then we will do our best to do that. And will we screw it up sometimes? Yes, we will. But we are meant to try, and God will bless that. That's also part of the story of what's going on here. Notice what happens to that one slave who doesn't uh, do anything good with what's been left. The king comes back and there are enemies and he says, slaughter those who are against me. I think there are two stories actually going on here. It may be that Luke has kind of put some things together, right? The king has come and Jesus tells another parable. I forget if it's in Matthew or, or Mark. He tells another parable about uh, 
the son of the ruler goes away for a time and comes back and people have taken over. They don't regard him anymore as the king. That's another vision of, of who we have as Jesus. Jesus is the king, but people are opposed to who the king is, to who the prince is. And they are opposed to the goodness that God will bring into the world. Here, the story is told very graphically with that, that typical, uh, in a sense, exaggeration that we find sometimes in, in Middle Eastern color, uh, uh, culture. These enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. That doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does it? <laughs> no, no. Is that what Jesus is actually going to do? There are some who think that's what Jesus is going to do. That when Jesus comes riding down out of heaven on his big white horse with his tongue, the two-edged sword, that is what he's literally going to come and do is kill all the bad people on the surface of the planet. There are some Christians who think that. What they don't understand about the story is that everybody on the planet is a bad person, right? Everybody deserves to be slaughtered in some sense because none of us live up to who God wants us to be. This is a way of saying, though, that God is going to deal with injustice. God is going to deal with sin. God is going to deal with the evil that takes us away from what God wants for his world. We do not have to reduce it to the level of God killing the evil people. If God is going to kill the evil people, then we're all toast. What is going to happen is that God is going to kill evil itself. God already has when he died on the cross. He defeated the ultimate power of evil. So both of those things are going on in the story. One of the things that's going on is a, is a reminder of who God is as a loving and forgiving and kind God who also wants us to participate with him and do good in the world to help him continue to create the world. And we are meant to do that and we don't have to be afraid about that. We can sin boldly knowing we're not always going to get it right. That's part of the story. But the other part of the story and there are two stories put together probably, is that Jesus is the one who is God and in control. It's in a sense that Jesus doesn't have to go to heaven. Jesus came from heaven with royal power, with royal authority. Remember what the Apostles' Creed says? That Jesus ascended into heaven, sits on the right hand of God the Father, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is, as part of the Trinity, as God is in control, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? All that's going on with this story. But we got to keep going on because there's more text. When Jesus had come near Bethpage and Bethany, this is verse 29 of chapter 19, at the place called the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives, okay? Remember, we got an olive tree here, okay? He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Okay, Jesus has been on the road to Jerusalem. Now he's there. This is the beginning of the end. The end which is the beginning again, but that's Easter, right? How many of you have been to the Mount of Olives, right? You, you have Jerusalem sitting on the highest hill in the whole region. And when you leave Jerusalem, you go down into the Kidron Valley on one side where all the trash was put and where people were burned and buried sometimes. Or you go across the other valley and up to the Mount of Olives to where the olive trees were, to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus is coming from. He's coming down the mountain so he can go back up the mountain into Jerusalem. And he's riding on a colt. This is the, this is the Palm Sunday story, if you will. You already know a lot about this story, right? People were waving palms. They were waving branches. There's none of that here in the story as Luke tells it. There's not a sense that there's a big crowd, right? Those who were with Jesus, those who knew Jesus were coming, saw him riding on the colt. Again, the colt, you've heard about that before, right? A colt is a Volkswagen Beetle. It's not a Humvee, okay? A colt is a, is a vehicle of peace, okay? It's an ice cream truck. It's not an army tank. That's what a colt is, the, 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 the donkey, right? It's not a war horse. There's some significance to that. The people spread their cloaks out. They begin to say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's that word, Hosanna. Again, they want him to be the king. They think he is the king. They're not sure. They don't really know how that's all going to work out. It turns out badly as far as many of them concerned. But that's what's going on. Jesus is coming into the town. The Pharisees try to stop it. The Pharisees are clear that Jesus is not the person they want to be in power. They disagree with everything he's saying and doing. But Jesus says, if these people were not crying out in praise, the stones themselves would shout out. Now, we look back at this story with the benefit of hindsight. We know what was going on. They didn't know then. But now Jesus is in Jerusalem. The battle is engaged. The last act is ready to start. And then one last passage. We'll finish this quickly. Verses 41 to 44. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he saw Jerusalem. He wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jerusalem had already been surrounded by enemies and destroyed, conquered, and then rebuilt multiple times. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, Jerusalem was an ancient city. It had been surrounded, destroyed, and then rebuilt many, many times. He says it's going to happen again. This is not so much prophecy looking forward as it's prophecy that comes from looking back. 
at the history of Jerusalem and saying, history will repeat itself. Oh, we are watching history repeat itself, are we not, in worldwide politics today? Jesus is commenting not just about Jerusalem, but about the nature of human beings and human society. Would that Jerusalem had known for the things that make for peace. We know the things that make for peace. We don't pay attention to them. He sees that Jerusalem again is going to be destroyed, and again and again and again over the history of Jerusalem. It's the nature of human civilization. It's the nature of human cities, that we get it right for a while, and then we destroy it all, and then, and then we start again. So Jesus laments. He cries. He weeps in the depths of his soul for how badly wrong we get it. And then verses 45 to 48, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day, Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Again, this is setting up the story. We're getting ready for the great battle, the great confrontation that will happen between Jesus and the rest, of, the rest of the world. He goes to the temple. The temple has been an important place to Jesus. Luke told us about how Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple when he was eight days old so that he could be dedicated to God. They took him to the temple when Mary was purified. He went to the temple when he was 12 to celebrate Passover. He didn't want to leave the temple. Now he's come back to the temple and said, you've gotten it all wrong. You've turned it into a place of money changing. Not that money is bad, but it was not being used. The temple was not being used for its intended purpose as a house of prayer. So then every day he went back to the temple. Now we're told in other stories when he went to the temple, he threw out the money changers. That's another one of those graphic stories that junior high boys especially like to participate in when you do a dramatic reenactment of Jesus throwing out the money changers. Junior high boys love to throw things everywhere and turn the tables over everywhere, right? It's a lot of fun. What's the point? The point is humanity has gotten it wrong. Jesus is putting it right again. He goes back to the temple and teaches there. Jesus is trying to recover what the faith is all about. But then those who should know what the faith is all about, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people are trying to kill him. The confrontation is engaged. We got to keep our temples pure. We got to keep our religion pure. We got to keep opening our eyes so that we're not blind to who Jesus is and what he's saying we should do and who we should be in the world. I've preached that sermon long enough. And you're off the hook. There's no time for questions. <laughs> Let's pray. God be with us. Protect us, encourage us, strengthen us, help us to see and then to do your will in the world today. For Jesus' sake, amen. One last note. We are going to meet the week of Holy Week. Sometimes we don't, but we are having Bible study in Holy Week, okay? The Wednesday before Easter. Just keep that in your mind. God bless you all. You're very patient. You're very kind, and some of you are still awake. It's a good thing.